Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. If you don't know the meaning of the word cisgender, don't feel too badly. It was not added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary until 2017. But even if it's new to you, it is probably not new to your teenage children or grandchildren. Wikipedia says it describes a person whose gender identity matches their sex assigned at birth. This definition makes a subtle assumption that no culture in the history of mankind has ever made. That your gender is assigned, presumably by doctors, nurses, or parents, instead of discovered as reality. It was understood by every culture of the world that a girl who thinks she is a boy in a girl's body is delusional. What used to be called gender identity disorder was changed to gender dysphoria by the American Psychiatric Association in 2013. One of the greatest treasures given by God to his people is his revelation of how he created man and woman differently in Genesis 2 to complete each other, becoming a loving unity, which God called man, just as the three different persons of the Trinity are one God in a perfect unity of love. This episode examines how to guide the rising generation to see the glory of God's creation design of male and female and bring light to those enslaved by a tragic, darkened misunderstanding of gender identity and sexuality. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 51 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. God speaks directly to the subject of gender in his creation process of humans. Male and female he created then. Genesis 1.27b, as we saw last week. God created no gender-neutral humans. Gender is not a social construct, nor is it assigned. It is part of God's design, profoundly grounded in the created order and woven into the fabric of reality. Designed gender differences between male and female do nothing to undermine the dignity and value of each other. As we saw last week, both man and woman are created to be God's image bearers. This fact secures their equal and inestimable worth in the sight of God. But equality of worth and dignity between man and woman does not mean sameness any more than the equal worth of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means sameness. In fact, the differences that God created into men and women are so important that God takes almost the whole second chapter of Genesis, 20 verses, to emphasize the distinction between the two. For example, they differ in the substance from which they're made, the way God fashioned them, the way they got their name, the moral responsibility directly assigned to them by God, the primary way they exercise dominion, the purpose assigned to them, their roles in relating to one another. Understanding and internalizing this second chapter of Genesis is profoundly important for our loved ones to flourish. Human wholeness comes not by denying reality, but by conforming to it. 
As one wise theologian observes, sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of one's life as a person. As the self is always aware of itself as an I, so this I is always aware of itself as himself or herself. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound up, not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. God's gift to us of having Moses write down in Genesis 2 how differently he went about creating Adam and Eve reveals awesome nuggets of truth, pointing to what our roles are in marriage so we can follow them and build a thriving marriage. They help us better understand our mate and how her needs are different from our own, so we can love her well. These verses are vital in helping our sons and daughters build a strong self-image that is rooted in surrender to their creation calling as a man or woman, and to focus on the inner qualities that exhibit godly manhood and womanhood. These diamonds and rubies of wisdom will be the subject of our study the next two weeks. But these riches are not intended just for us to flourish. As Christians, we are called to be a blessing to the lost world that surrounds us. As God's words made clear to Abraham, the father of the Christian faith, his plan for believers has always been for them to enable the rest of the world to thrive. His words to Abraham were, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Today, the culture that surrounds us needs our influence when it comes to understanding gender more than it ever has. Authors Owen Strachan and Gavin Peacock in their book, The Grand Design, God Made Them Male and Female, describes our culture's deconstruction of God's gender design. They write, many people today pursue androgyny, a sexless world. As a result, boys want to be girls today and girls want to be boys. Many men embrace the traits and attitudes traditionally associated with womanhood. Many women do the same with manhood. Both sides avoid at all costs hard and fast stereotypes. The ultimate transgression today is to fit into past concepts of the sexes. Men have grown increasingly passive, effeminate, and unsure of themselves. Women have become increasingly manly, aggressive, and unsure of their future. These are hard words today, but they sum up the drift of a secularizing world. So, let's examine how sin has corrupted God's good design of created gender differences. First, marriage failure and the mistreatment of women is blamed on God's design. In every culture of the world, men have used their power to abuse women horribly, and women have resisted the authority of their husbands. Christians must be moved with compassion for the way that the knife of rejection is plunged deeply into the hearts of those in failed marriages whose partners commit adultery or divorce them. And we must grieve over the way that a child's parents splitting up shatters his world. But we must model this compassion for those wounded by marriage failure with eyes that see the truth about the cause of such pain. The problem is not God's design of man and woman to be deliberately different so that they need each other to be fully complete. The solution is not 
to label anyone who mentions the differences in God's design of men and women as sexist. Blaming God's design of man and woman for the pain inflicted on each other in marriage is like crashing your car because you take a turn too fast and blaming the designer of your faulty brakes because they didn't slow you down fast enough. There's nothing faulty about God's design of male and female for different roles. The problem is us. We have corrupted God's design, which was and is still very good. The second way sin mars God's good design of gender is that it corrupts human sexual desire. This corruption may be exhibited by intense sexual attraction to women who are not your wife, instead of focusing 100% of your sexual attraction toward her alone. Sin also causes same-sex attraction. The only solution to broken sexual desires that attract people to the wrong thing and lead to acting on that attraction in a sinful way is the redeeming power of Christ. Here are some false worldviews that blind people, unfortunately, to this solution. First, the idea that most Christians are gay bashers. Brent Kunkel, in A Practical Guide to Culture, comments that he doesn't know a single Christian whom he has seen be hostile to homosexuals. Nor have I. He recounts a conversation with a Christian teen who claimed that Christians treat gay people terribly. Brett answered, You grew up in the church, so you've observed Christians for 16 years. In those 16 years, how many times did you personally witness a Christian treat a gay person terribly? The teen thought about it and answered, never. Kunkel then asks rhetorically, where does this evidence come from if it's not clearly evidenced in the lives of Christians? It comes from a media-saturated culture that constantly posts images of picketing Christian so-called groups like Westboro Baptist Church and their God Hates Fag signs in an effort to characterize all Christians in this misleading way. A second false worldview idea that blinds folks to the need of those in the homosexual community for help is the argument that since homosexuals are born with same-sex attraction, it is not fair for God to make homosexual sex wrong. The attempts to show that homosexuality is genetic have been disproved by research. Among other things, the study of identical twins, who of course have identical DNA, in cases where one twin is gay, the other twin is gay only 15% of the time. Even the pro-gay organization, the American Psychological Association, APA, has had to admit the lack of evidence to support the idea that homosexuality is genetic. They write, although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influence on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. This does not necessarily mean that a person cannot be born with same-sex attraction, since all humans are born with sinful natures. Same-sex attraction comes from the sinful nature which compels us all toward evil. 
Galatians 5, 19 through 21 explains that this nature is the source of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, as well as idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. A human inclination toward evil is part of every human's experience. Resisting the wrong impulses of our heart is required of every human. To have unfulfilled sexual desire is not harmful, but the path of life when that desire is evil. It is also noteworthy that sexual desire is rooted in our human need for intimacy, leading Paul to correct the thinking of the Christians struggling with sexual temptation in Corinth by writing, You cannot say that our physical body was made for sexual promiscuity. It was made for God, and God is the answer to our deepest longings. The body's thirst for illicit sexual satisfaction, when quenched, does feel good for the moment. But, says Paul, it never really satisfies. To the contrary, it drives a wedge between us and intimacy with God, which is the love bond that most satisfies our heart. It's important to add, however, that the choice of a homosexual to repent and come to faith in Christ is often the choice to remain celibate. Thinking that repentance will replace same-sex attraction with heterosexual attraction is a common and often very hurtful misunderstanding among Christians who don't know Christians who have come out of the gay world. So the second way sin corrupts God's gender design is by corrupting sexual desires. The third way that it corrupts God's gender design is that it causes humans to lose touch with reality and believe delusions. This is a terrifying result of yielding to sin. The idea that I can make my gender identity whatever I want to make it, regardless of the biological reality of my gender, is absurd. It is disconnected from reality. All 30 trillion of a man's cells tell him he is a male because they all have XY chromosomes. He probably has a thousand percent more testosterone than a woman less estrogen, and obvious male reproductive organs. Only a severe delusion could possibly cause a man to think he is a woman. To demonstrate this delusion, Joseph Backholm, president of the Family Institute Policy of Washington, conducted an interview with students at the University of Washington. The students affirmed the right of every individual to declare his own gender identity, regardless of his biology. Then Backholm challenged the idea that simply claiming something is true makes it true, when in reality it's false. He asked them, if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? If I told you I was seven years old, what would your response be? If I told you I am six feet five inches tall, what would your response be? Back home is five feet, nine inches tall. Amazingly, the vast majority of student interviewees were unwilling to say that what back home claimed being a woman, Chinese, seven years old and six foot, five inches tall isn't really true. Normally, when a human's mind breaks from reality to this degree, he is diagnosed with psychosis 
which is defined as a severe mental disorder in which thought and emotions are so impaired that contact is lost with external reality. When we consider the soul darkening that must take place for a human being to embrace the delusion that he can determine for himself his gender identity, regardless of his biology, Romans 1, verse 21, as we mentioned last week, comes to mind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So how do we help our kids resist the false narrative that gender is a social construct and love those making such a claim? First, ask our kids questions and listen well. Good shepherding always begins with knowing your sheep. This means discovering what your teen thinks and feels about these issues. We achieve this goal by asking questions. What does he think about the transgender movement? What does she think about homosexuality? What has her experience been with lesbian friends? Does he think the biblical views are outdated? What does she think about male-female stereotypes? What do they think the Bible teaches about gender roles? It is only by asking questions and listening carefully to the answers and feelings behind the answers that we can help our children make the biblical worldview of gender their own. Number two, let God move you and your loved ones with compassion for the sexually broken and those blinded to the glory of God's creation design. Homosexual sex is not the unpardonable sin or eviler than the everyday sins Christians struggle with like pride, backbiting, and heterosexual lust. Furthermore, to whom much is given, much is required. The greater mystery of sin's power, in my view, is not the brokenness of sexual desires in a fallen race, but why someone like myself, who knows that Jesus died for me and has opened up my eyes to the destructive power of sin, still rebels against him and doesn't love him far more than I do. We also need to help our loved ones understand that the LGBTQ life is very destructive. For example, the Center for Disease Control compared gay, lesbian, and bisexual students to heterosexual ones in three categories. Feelings of sadness or hopelessness. 60.4% in the LGBTQ life compared to 26.4% in the heterosexual life. Serious contemplation of suicide, 42.8% in the LGBTQ life compared to 14.8% in the heterosexual life. Actual suicide attempts, 29.4% in the LGBTQ world compared to 6.4% in the heterosexual world. Some dismiss this striking factual disparity by arguing that such despair in the LGBTQ community comes from its lack of acceptance by many in our culture. But Stone Street and Kunkel point out 
even in gay-friendly countries like the Netherlands, where same-sex marriage has been legal since 2002, or in countries like England or New Zealand that are recognized for the liberty afforded LGBT citizens, rates of anxiety, depression, drug dependence, and suicide are still much higher among gay men and women. Also, we need to help our kids know that 41% of transgender men and women attempt suicide. 41%. A staggering fact when you consider that the rate among the general population is 1.6%. We also need to help our teens realize that transgender people feel like they are broken and something needs to be fixed. They may think that the problem is that they are a man trapped in a woman's body and have their breasts removed and start testosterone shots. In contrast, though, the biblical worldview tells us what is really broken, her relationship to herself and with God as a result of mankind's sin. Most transgender people believe that they don't fit their own or other stereotypes for masculinity or femininity. The solution, however, is not to mutilate their body. It's to come to know the God who gloriously creates no two expressions of femininity the same or masculinity alike. Each is unique and all overlap some with the other gender's bell-shaped curve of characteristics. There is so much opportunity to be used by Christ to show love to a transgender person simply by being his or her friend. Jesus poured acceptance and friendship into the heart of the sexually broken woman at the well of Samaria, opening her heart to come to faith in him. With Christ's help, our children and grandchildren can do the same. While the 2020s will be a defining decade for Christians in America, in my view, Will we winsomely influence a fallen Western culture drifting further into darkness in its understanding of gender and sexuality as the absurd notion that gender is a social construct gains ground? Or will God's people do their job and be the blessing to the world that it desperately needs by modeling, teaching our children, promoting, and perhaps suffering by taking a stand for God's design of male and female. To summarize this episode, After Genesis 1 celebrates the special dignity imparted to both man and woman by God who made them both his image bearers. In Genesis 2, God reveals to his people how different he has made man and woman to be. He goes to a great deal of trouble explaining these differences to us, not only so his covenant people will flourish in their self-understanding and marriage, but so they can help others thrive by promoting these truths in the culture they are created to shape. Protecting the rising generation from being conformed to the fallen thinking of strands of our culture requires us to help them see how sin has corrupted God's good design of gender differences in three ways. First, sin causes both male and female to exploit each other in their gender roles and then blame the structure for their sin, decreeing that it is sexist to observe differences in God's design of masculinity and femininity. 
Second, man's sin mars God's good gender design by corrupting sexual desire. Same-sex sex is destructive. Satisfying one's sexual hunger this way is neither wholesome nor beneficial. Like all sinful desires, same-sex attraction takes us in the wrong direction to satisfy the heart's deepest desires. Third, sin corrupts God's gender design by causing some to lose touch with reality and believe delusions. A girl does not become a boy by cutting off her breasts and taking testosterone. She remains a very troubled and now disfigured young woman. We covered three ways to help our teens resist the false narrative that gender is a social construct, ask them questions, share how much those in the LGBTQ life suffer, and help them understand that transgender people feel like they're broken and don't belong with their own gender. This deficit makes them open to your friendship, acceptance, and the love of Christ. For further prayerful thought, number one, how would you explain to a new Christian that gender is not a social construct? See your show notes for further questions. This week's past series highlight is Anchoring Our Kids to Biblical Truth About Gender, Season 2, Episodes 22 through 26, April 4th through May 2nd. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we'll examine God's design of Adam, its implications for us, and how to get men out of the sinful passivity we inherited from Adam. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.